Hi, welcome to the Newberry Chronicles, where we read through the Newberry Medal winners one book at a time. I'm Michael. And I'm Rebecca. And this time, in our first official episode after our introductory episode, we are talking about 1963's Newberry Medal winner, A Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle. Um, so Rebecca, give us an overview of what this book is. Yeah, so before I do the overview, I do just want to say Michael and I picked this book because we tried to pick a book that uh, we both were familiar with, um, you know, just something we had visited frequently in our childhood, one that we had both read. Um, so yeah, so that's why we picked this one first for our first official book to uh, read and discuss. You might also hear the dishwasher behind us. Um, our kids just went to sleep, so hopefully you don't hear any children. But uh, last time we also had a dishwasher running behind us, so this may just be like the default ambient yeah. um, background of our, of we'll our just, podcast. We'll just see if that's an ongoing theme. So, yeah, so Wrinkle in Time, um, it was published in 1962. Uh, it won the Newbery Award in 1963. So this was a book that Madeline Langle had tried to get published, I think, 20-something times before it finally took. And so turns out um, people didn't know what to do with it. Um, some said it was, uh, like, it wasn't an adult book, but it wasn't a children's book, so they didn't really know what to do with it. Madeline Langle had a theory that it took so long to get published because it had a female protagonist in a science fiction novel. Um, which at the time was um, very uncommon. Um, but yeah, Wrinkling Time, uh, funny story, she ended up getting it published because she threw a tea party for her mom around Christmas time, and uh, a publisher was there at the party, and they pitched the idea, and, and he published it. So that was exciting. Um, so the plot of Wrinkling Time. So Wrinkling. The one that was so hard, the plot that got canceled by 26 publishers. Right. Right. Um, so Wrinkle in Time follows the story of the Murray family. Meg Murray is the protagonist. Um, so her father has been on a government mission, I guess you'd say, for how many years? I think it's been say? months. Oh, He's an astrophysicist, like an experimental astrophysicist. It can't right? have been months because Charles Wallace was a baby when he left. Okay, so it's been, been a while. It's yeah. been a while. He's been gone for a while, and they've lost contact with him, but they don't think he's dead. And um, the whole town kind of like sticks up their noses at the Murrays because they're weird. Um, Michael and I both said that this family gives off very homeschool vibes, like the kids. Yeah, if, everything. if homeschooling had been more of a thing in the 1960s. Right. But the mom is apparently really hot. So they make a point of saying that yes. many, many times in this right. book, which is weird. Also, Meg is not hot. We were also told many, not, many times. She is not hot, but you know, she's got she's got her strengths. She's also got her faults, which ends up saving the family. So so yeah, uh, dad has been missing for a while on a government mission. And then there are three, I guess you'd say celestial beings that show up. Mrs. Witch, Mrs. Who, and Mrs. What's it? Um, to help Meg and her brother Charles Wallace, and then their homie um, Calvin O'Keefe, um, who honestly doesn't do a lot in this book, but no. like hold Meg's hand. I mean, as unhot as Meg allegedly <laughs> is, he seems very into her. Very handsy. So anyway, um, yes, these three celestial beings show up to help Meg and Charles Wallace and Calvin 
um, learn where her father is and bring him home to safety. So the whole book is um, really a journey um, with the theme of uh, good versus evil, and the evil in this book is really sameness, I'd say. They're fighting um, the, the darkness. What do they call it? The dark thing? The black thing? Yeah, there's the like black. this... It's hard to, one of the reasons why I imagine this book is hard to describe is that it's really difficult to do like the book jacket, like summary of it, right. because it, it like, will just go in these really bizarre directions that you wouldn't see coming. Like, for, so for like the first couple chapters, they're in their home in, is it Connecticut? Is that where they're, the, upstate New York maybe, or like somewhere like East Coast, but like rural, um, and just strange things are happening mm -hmm. and these celestial beings are coming, but they look like old women. Right. Um, and then all of a sudden, like literally all of a sudden, they're on another planet, like right. with very little warning. And then on this other planet, the celestial beings turn into like centaurs that can fly basically. And then they go to the this like two-dimensional planet for like half a second. And then mm -hmm. like, so there's a lot of stuff that happens in here that's hard to mm -hmm. describe. Yeah, but the big, the big overall thing that's going on is this darkness this evil yeah. thing is taking over the universe and there's one planet that is given in and that's Kamazots and that's where um Meg's dad is so they get go to Kamazots and everyone uh follows a very particular rhythm to their life that is is literally identical and if anyone diverts from that then um there's punishment um and then it is the one that's controlling Kamazots um, which is like a giant brain. It's really yeah. just like the giant brain that's like pulsing. Like mm -hmm. it sounds like everyone is in a club the whole time. Cause there's just like this, like <laughs> they, they say that there's like this beat, like this pulse that goes to the planet and yeah. everyone just like follows the rhythm of this yeah. beat, which emanates from the brain. So it's like, um, a, a hellish rave, I guess we would say. Set in like suburbia. Yes. Um, and so... So what ends up happening is they find Meg's dad, and then I guess are we giving spoilers? I mean, at this point, this is two thirds of the way into okay, the book, so we'll, so just, we'll, we'll just, just go, go the, for it. Spoiler warning for those who don't want the last third of the book. Yeah, and so Charles Wallace is a young kid, but he is a genius, and he and Meg have a really special connection. Um, but he's clearly the, the I mean for lack of a better word, he's the brain of the family. One of the brains. There's many brains. Um, but he thinks that he can get in its mind and um, be able to understand it and come out of it and help to save everything. Um, but what ends up happening is he becomes controlled by it until Meg comes back and is able to love him and... Um, connect with him with that that interpersonal love that it can't understand and that's how she rescues him right because um, it is so mechanical and like rational like so like the whole book the it's like this whole family of brain brainiacs right mm -hmm. the mother is like a like award-winning like hot biologist brain. yeah hot yeah really sexy biologist and the father is of course like this like government employed astrophysicist and uh, Charles Wallace is like this like savant like mm -hmm. child prodigy sort of thing um that the rest of the town thinks is like dumb I guess because he doesn't speak outside of the family 
Like, it took him a while to talk, but when he did, you know, he was just saying brilliant things. But the whole book, she's been thinking, like, well, I'm not as smart as all these people. Mm -hmm. I'm not as hot as my mom. Um, (laughs) I'm, you know, I'm not like these other people. She has trouble at school Mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, I mean, she's clearly very intelligent. And so, like, it's just in the context of the family that she doesn't feel like she measures up. But then, like, it turns out that, She's she can love people and and part of it too is that the Mrs. Witch and Mrs. Who and Mrs. What's it those celestial beings we were talking about tell her that the gift that they give her is her faults like use her faults, um, and they will work to her advantage and so those faults are really just her stubbornness and her tenacity, um, and her just unwillingness to give in, um, which ends up allowing her to to go back to Charles Wallace when everyone had kind of given up hope and, and build that connection with him again. So, yeah, so this book is part of a five-book series, which Michael and I found out from, um, like, our research in the back of this book, is that it's actually part of, like, I guess two series or three well, series? Well, it turns out, something I didn't know reading this book as a kid is that like because I didn't read very many of Madeline Langle's books but apparently like most of the novels that Madeline Langle wrote are in some way connected to the characters that appear in A Wrinkle in Time Mm -hmm. and it's the back of the book says it's part of a quintet the time quintet but if you go to the index in the back of the book that has the full like table of her novels and how they connect to one another, it turns out that there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. There are 14 books that she wrote that in some way connect to A Wrinkle in Time and yeah. take place in the same universe, and some of which share characters. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this is not always the case with other Newbery Medal winners, but luckily this is the first in the series. There'll be other Newbery right. Award winners that are like the fourth or fifth books in series, and I guess we'll cross that bridge when we come to yeah. it. But yeah. So, yeah, that's A Wrinkle in Time. Is there anything else synopsis-wise we should talk about? I don't think so. I mean, the 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 big thing, the reason why it's called A Wrinkle in Time is... Oh, yeah. Um, basically, there's this concept, which is like a real... Like a theoretically real concept, which is that, like, uh, in order to travel long distances to get to interstellar planets, like, you can either take, like, hundreds of thousands of years that would take, like, you know, to travel in a rocket ship to go to another solar system um or uh you can do what they do in this book which is that you can bend space um to uh make the actual linear distance that you travel a lot smaller mm-hmm. um and so that is they they call it a tesseract and i don't know if that's a phrase that madeline langle wrote or not one of the things that's tricky about her books is she mixes like concepts that she invents with like what were at the time like experimental like vanguard ideas in science um which i think is really cool it is really cool in the sequel for instance there's a lot of talk of mitochondria but there's also this talk of like ferandelay which ferandelay she invented but when i read that as a kid i didn't know that she invented that and so i thought that ferandelay were also part of cells in the same way that mitochondria (laughs) are until i got to biology um but anyway there's also, they, they do the same thing with time at the end of the book where it's like as if they've not been gone on this other planet for very long. So right. they've like bent time so that they can have not actually spent that much time away from their home. Right. 
Um, one of the things that we want to do with each book is, if we've read them before, kind of give our memories of the book and how we remember encountering it as a kid, and then explaining how we feel now as adults reading this. Um, a lot of these books we've not read before, but in the case of A Wrinkle in Time, both Rebecca and I have read it. Um, so um, I guess we'll start there. Um, so my memory of the book um, is, I remember reading it I must have been like 10 or 11 or something. I remember the house that I lived in when I read it. And That's it was sweet. when I was, like we moved into the house when I was nine and we left it when I was 12. So um, it was somewhere in that range. Um, and I remember reading it, my dad, it was one of the books I mentioned, I think in the introductory episode, that a lot of my early childhood reading was recommended by my parents. And this is a book that we had around the house for some reason. It was not a book that my parents, it was not the copy my parents had read. But it was an old copy of A Wrinkle in Time. My dad recommended that I read it, and I did. And I remember really liking it. And I think that, like, a lot of children, especially, like, the kind of children who, like, read books because their parents <laughs> suggest it. And, you know, you're kind of, like, bookish kid who's not very social or whatever. Like, I I remember really connecting with um, Meg and, like, the fact that she doesn't know how to connect to other people and she feels, like, not part of you know, the the cool kids club or whatever, which we should mention. One thing you didn't mention is she has two extremely normie, like, jock yes. twin brothers yes. who are also brilliant, but they're, like, actually good at being part of society rather than being just, like, uh, like genius iconoclasts like the rest of her family. Um, and that's a tension in the book, too. Um, but anyway, so, like, I, I identified with that while also, like, you know, there. I think that there's, like, a genre of children's literature that is, like, really... Um, it, it like Ender's Game or like different things like that that is really like congratulatory of children who are precocious um, and this book is definitely that mm-hmm. um, where there's a lot of like oh you know these kids have um, a knowledge like these kids know more than their peers and the reason they don't fit in is because they're so smart um, even Meg like she's like bored in school that's like one of her problems and, and she can like do math really well but not, but not the way that they want her to do it. Right, exactly. Which is, like, part of the whole, like, conformity, like, versus, like, you know, unique identity sort of thing the book is doing. But I think that also, like, that really appeals to children, especially children who, like, like me, yeah. like, got really good grades and were kind of, like, precocious in certain ways. And that can be, like, really, like, you know, oh, wow, this book gets me. You know, that sort of thing. And I remember having that feeling. I also remember it just being cool. Like, uh, I don't know how much science fiction I'd read at the time. But I'd read enough that I was, like, I knew that I liked that sort of thing. I don't think that I had read a lot of, like, the really mystical, strange science fiction that this is doing, which, like, I mean, this book came out in the early 60s, and, like, if you've read science fiction from the 1960s, it's, like, part of, like, a lot of people call it, like, the new wave of, like, new wave sci-fi, where it became a lot more experimental and strange. And I I don't think that Madeline Langle would identify herself with, like, um some of those authors uh, who were doing, like, new wave sci-fi, but it kind of feels of the same thing where they're, you, you know, you don't get these, like, square-jawed, like, protagonists who are, like, through logic and reason going to, like, solve these problems. You, it, It's a lot stranger, and I remember that being really cool and striking. Um, I also remember thinking it was cool that it talks about Jesus, because at one point, like, uh-huh. it talks about the... Um, like, all the warriors of light who are fighting the darkness. And, like, there's a lot of, like, quoting of Bible verses and things like this in the book, and they talk about 
how Jesus and I think the Buddha or something like that, or Gandhi maybe, um, are like all words for light. And I remember thinking like, it was cool that I felt like it was incorporating stuff from like Christianity, you know, which, you know, uh, yeah, they have scripture in there too. Right. Um, so those are what I remember. I read this book several times as a kid. Um, and this is my first time since I was probably a teenager reading it, but I read it a lot growing up, probably like half a dozen times. Um, this is a favorite of mine. Um, what about you, Rebecca? Yeah, so I I was trying to remember when I read it for the first time. I think that it was in sixth grade. I cannot remember for sure. And I remember really liking it then. Um, and then I revisited it in college when we were actually talking about these books when we were dating or beginning to date i think the copy that we have is from a bookstore from the town from jackson like the town we went to school yeah so i reread the the quintet and i don't remember a lot about the other books but yeah i loved this book uh when i was younger honestly a lot of my earliest memories of this are associated with the movie that disney made and was it 2003 Right, Disney has made two different movies of this. One in 2018 that has, like, Chris Pine and, like, Reese Witherspoon and Oprah in it. Um, but then they made a TV movie. But and... we had the VHS at home, and so I watched it quite a bit. Like, I really liked it, which is not... <laughs> Hold on, Madeline Langle has a great quote about the movie <laughs> uh, thing that we found on the Wikipedia page. Um, uh, it was... Oh, man. Keep talking, and I'll She's... find it. So anyway, I loved this movie. Well, I don't know. Love's a strong word, but I watched it a lot. And it had Gregory Smith in it, who was in the show I watched at the time was Everwood. And I loved it. He was Ephraim. And so he w- he's Calvin in the movie. Anyway, so a lot oh, of... Oh, I found the, I found okay. the quote. Um, so Mad- Madeline Langle is interviewed by Newsweek and asked if the film met her expectations. And she said, and this is a direct quote, <laughs> I have glimpsed it. I expected it to be bad, and it is. Yeah. Well, and, and yes, it surely. But I enjoyed it. And it's funny because a lot of, there's like a few actors that were in these, I don't like, shows that I watched and not a lot of other people watched that were in this movie. So it's just, it's just funny to me. Anyway, but I, yeah, so I, I love this book um, then, and I still do, which I know we're not there at the time. Um, I'm trying to remember some of my initial impressions. Like, I liked the fantasy of it. I liked, um, I, I don't know, I think Kamazots is a really cool, like, not a cool planet. What happens there is terrible. But I think the imagery of that, of that in the book is really good. Um, so I was pretty fascinated by that. I, um, I thought their family was really neat and weird. Um... And it was just sweet that, like, nobody understood them, but they really understood each other. So I really It is a very sweet-loving family. I also remember being really bought into the romance between Meg and Calvin, which we'll get to my impressions about that now, later. But anyway, I remember really liking them and their romance. So, so yeah, those were some of my initial impressions. But I did, even now, as I read this book now, like, I still pictured the characters as the people in the 2003 movie. Oh, like, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Like, I can't not, because that's, you know, that's what I watched so much. That's some of my biggest associations, which it's funny that Madeline Nagel 
hated that movie, and that's kind of my. <laughs> I think like my mind, it's but. it's like a really. Sorry uh, if you hear that. There's people doing fireworks. Yeah, we're recording Memorial this on Day. Memorial Day, and our neighborhood always goes all out they with fireworks. We celebrate everything, so. Um, but um, I don't know. It's a weird. I don't, it's funny that it's been adapted twice into movies because this is a book that strikes me as really difficult to adapt just because of how strange it is and it's not conventionally structured yeah and like i don't know it is weird and i guess like disney must own the rights since they since they adapted it twice um and i think i saw the tv movie with you at your house one time but i've also seen the 2018 version i will say neither version is good they're both bad and I think part of the reason that they're bad is that it's really difficult to understand what to do with this book. And I think that this can get into, like, how I feel about it now, like, having read it for the first time in probably at least 10 years, probably 15 years. Um, And so I still really like it. um, But I think that, like, there are things that stand out that are funny. Um, We've already kind of joked about how much it comments on the character's appearances, specifically Megan, her mom. And there's this one part in the beginning of the book where Meg is like, I'm just so plain and I'm not very attractive. And her mother's like, it's okay. I was like that too once. And now look at me. I'm so beautiful. And like... And Calvin says like, oh, they're rumoring that your dad is not here because he's run off with some other woman. But how could anyone leave your mother? She's so good looking, basically. Yeah, I think what struck me reading it this time is... This book is kind of caught between eras um, where you have, on the one hand, especially the setup, is very like what I imagine like 1940s and 50s, like children's literature being, where you have like kind of small town life, you have a, a like a kind of a fairly traditional family. Granted, the father is absent, uh, but the father wouldn't normally be absent for this family, and the mother does all the cooking and stuff. Um, they're all, like, very... On little... her Bunsen burner. Yeah, yeah, She's, like, in her lab, like, cooking stew on the Bunsen burner while she does, like, biological tests or <laughs> something. Uh, it's really wild. Um, and in this book, it makes sense that she's playing both roles because um, she's, you know, a, a single parent in this book. But in the other books, she still plays those roles. And it's really funny because the dad is there. <laughs> but, um, so, like, in some ways, it's a very typical, like, kind of atomic family sort of thing. Like in some ways wouldn't feel out of place with like, you know, you know what, like, uh, like Henry Huggins, like Beverly Cleary, that sort of thing where you have these kind of like precocious kids who are like, just, they ride their bikes places, they go to school, like white picket fence sort of, sort of thing. And then the other, the other thing is this book is like really mystical and, and high minded in a way that like, like like Rebecca mentioned, like it had trouble being published, and I think part of the reason it had trouble being published is like it's like quite frankly like psychedelic, like you know early sixties. Like I don't think like Madeline Langle was like doing LSD or whatever, but it like kind of anticipates like how a lot of fantasy and science fiction literature would be in the next like couple of decades, where it's like yeah. mind bending and like um, really focused on high minded ideas, and like also really focused on Madeline Langle's religious preoccupations, which she's an Episcopal. Uh, Episcopalian, um, but she's also like a universalist, which I guess is not like a given among Episcopals. Um, and, uh, so she like incorporates a lot of elements of like her faith in there, which is, um, like really ambitious and strange, um, as well as incorporating a lot of like, um, 
scientific ideas as well. And so, like, you have on the one hand, like, a book that feels very old-fashioned in some ways, especially how it, like, introduces its characters, but also by the end feels, like, very visionary. And I think that, like, visionary in a way that a lot of books aren't, like, even young adult books, like, a lot of young adult books and a lot of children's books have this theme of, like, be yourself, you know, don't conform to everybody. Like, that's so common nowadays. You know, I think, like, maybe A Wrinkle in Time was, like, innovating that in some ways because I think that conformity was much more... um, much more of a value maybe in earlier decades, but like now it's like boilerplate, you know, like everything, like every children's media everywhere is like, live your dreams, don't let anyone tell you not to be who you are, or like whatever. Um, but like the specific ways that it goes about it are really interesting because um, I think it is like, and this this is me like coming at it from like me as an adult, like looking back, like is coming at it from a very specific point in time in which American life was changing and is responding to that change in a very specific way that I think, and, and a very cerebral way that's often not engaged with on this level in like a lot of YA literature that has like those themes about being yourself and don't conform. Like, because like you had after World War II, the United States became very, um, became very mechanized, right? And the United States had already been industrializing, but after World War II is where you see things like the rise of the suburbs and planned communities Um, you see like a real emphasis on like conformity and like not like, you know, having dissenting voices and stuff like that. You know, like there's of course like the red scare and that sort of stuff that happens in the 1950s that I'm sure Madeleine Langle is responding to on some level. Um, but also just, you have like the rise of television as mass media, like which projects like a kind of typical family, you know, the rise of like sitcoms and that sort of thing. Like the, the, concept of the nuclear family is sort of like solidified after world war ii um and the idea of like everyone like mass produced appliances and stuff like that like everyone has a microwave everyone like has these certain things in their house like this sort of mass like consumer conformity and i think that like there is also this like optimism about science as well you know where you have like, wow, we made jets and we can go supersonic and we can do all these things through reason and our science. You know, we, we made the atomic bomb and, you know, a lot of the science fiction of like the 1940s and 50s is very utopian and visionary where you're going to have like society that is like uh, under the rule of reason and law and science. Um, and that will be like amazing. And I think Madeline Langle in this book is really expressing a lot of anxiety about that because you have like a planet like Kamazots in which that is like come to be like it is like the American suburbs where everyone has the same things. Everyone is kind of like your upper middle class, like wealthy folks all doing the same things all at the same time. And that is portrayed to be like this evil that like robs humanity of its essence. And, um, I think that, like, the climax in which, like, Meg has to save Charles Wallace from, like... And, and like, Charles Wallace is, like, brilliant person, or her dad, a, a scientist, is, like, caught up in this web of that, you know, like, because they think that they are smart enough to engage with this. Um, but to be smart is simply to, like, play into, like, the conformity because all this conformity was able to happen because of scientific advancements that allowed for this highly mechanized society... And, like, love is something that doesn't necessarily fit into that. And the idea that she can save Charles Wallace with love, and love is the one thing that, like, conformity and, like, this, like, mechanized society can't understand or make room for. I, th- I think that's really interesting and 
And I mean, like, love is the answer in so many movies and books and stuff, but the way in which it's deployed in this book is, like, really interesting and cool. Were you going to say something, Rebecca? I'm sorry. I've been talking well, for a long time. I can wait for my turn. It's your turn. I, well, I think okay. I, that it should be your turn. Well, I think also building upon that, I also think it's really great how Madeline, I know we were making fun of it a second ago, but, like, Meg's insecurities about how different she is and how she struggles in school and how she is not as pretty as everyone, which I think everyone has on some level those insecurities, but for her, it, like, is creating actual struggles with her to, you know, just make her way through society. And then she's the one that brings her brother and her dad out of this world of, like, extreme sameness where everyone conforms to the same thing and um, everything is supposedly beautiful when it's really evil. Um, I think that that is really um, a, a great, a, I don't know, just a great juxtaposition that she makes to just kind of drive that home without it being... I don't know, like, on the nose. Like, it's not like she ever says, like, here's Meg, she was insecure, and that those, you know, she's the one that saves the day. You know, I don't know. I just think she does that really well and seamlessly. I still really also love this book. Um, I, I, I think one of my, like, reading it now, after I've read all these other things, and, you know, now in 2022 as opposed to in the 60s, like, it's interesting to me. I, I think that a lot of, you know, the dystopian YA novel is such a, a theme right now, you know, or a trend, however you'd say that. Like, that's, um, so many authors are doing that. I thought that when I read this, I thought that tessering sounded a lot like apparating in the Harry Potter world. So I wonder if J.K. Rowling borrowed from her there. I think Kamazots looks like so many other um, dystopian societies. and like, like the gi- the giver is kind of premised on that too. Is like right. everyone is the same, and individual identity is right. subservient to like sameness. Yeah. So I don't know the history of like who did that first or what that looked like and who borrowed what from anybody subconsciously or you know otherwise. But I I enjoyed seeing that. Now, like I think. Now it's easy to compare to those other books of like, well, so-and-so did it this way. But I, I think that she does it really well. Um, I wished, I don't know, part of me wished we had spent more time in Kamazots. Like, I think that we got a good feel of what it looks like. But um, I don't feel like the majority of the book takes place there. But that's definitely it where doesn't. the most action happens is there. So... It, but it's not a very long book. It's so. not. It's like under, it's under 250 pages. And like, I think this is like, it's just a really wild book, like a chil- a really wild children's book. She's in the sense that it's lot. Right. She crams so much in here and is so dense. Like, But it's not, it never feels like, I, I say I wish we had spent more time in Kamazots, but I don't think the book is like. A, a lesser book because we don't you know what I mean like I think that she does a lot with what she has but you're not like lacking it, you know it doesn't seem like she's doing too much to I me. think I think it's not that she's doing too much but there are things that like revisiting this as an adult I recognized as like oh this is not I think my mind had filled in stuff as a child or maybe like as a child, I just didn't care about these details. Like for instance, I kind of joked about it earlier, but Calvin is such a nothing character in this book. Oh, I was about to get to him. Oh yeah, go ahead. 
so I don't, that was one thing that I want to say. Like, when I was a kid, I was really bought into their romance. So Calvin does this thing that when I was a kid, I thought was, like, so romantic in books. Like, he just leads Meg everywhere and just is very... Yeah, he, like, grabs her when she's scared yes, and that sort of stuff. all the time, but even when she's not scared. Like, he's just constantly, like, touching her. Oh, they do but the thing where she takes don't... off her glasses and he's like, you have beautiful You're eyes. Beautiful. <laughs> My gosh, it's like this Princess Diaries moment. I don't know. It's just so so silly now but like the other thing is that he's super super protective but the thing about the book is they just like jump in she meets calvin and he's just automatically that way so much like, of the book is supposed like to so be, much of the book is like that it moves so fast like yeah we meet but, the but we're supposed to be bought into this romance without them ever really calling it a romance and like half the time they're holding hands and i'm like is this platonic is it not? And then all of a sudden, it's not. And it's so not. And the, I, by book three in this series, they have kids together. So. Right. And they end up having seven kids. That very, you know, they seem to be very happy, which is great for them. But I just, like, reading it now, I'm like, why are these two in love? Like, why? I mean, they can be Because he's smart. Like, honestly, like, but, he's precocious and doesn't fit in with his family. And Because right. he comes from. But they could just be friends. They could, they could be, but I think this is another thing about like the kind of old fashioned element yeah. of the book is that like you you have two teenagers who right. are what like are do with a heterosexual couple, and it's like, well, of course they're going to be in love at some point. Which I mean, I'm glad that they're in love, but they, I just feel like that. I guess I retract my former statement. I think with them, there's so little time to like build on all these characters, especially with like a romance that you're just starting up. So she doesn't try. It's just like, well, here they are. They both feel, you know, isolated in some ways. So they're in love. But I don't, I just thought that like, I mean, Calvin's a good guy, but I was just like, stop touching her. Like, just leave her alone. I don't know. I that that was yeah. kind of my reaction to him at this point, which, you know, like they definitely build on that relationship in other novels. But I kind of wish like, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was super necessary for this book. I think that, like, honestly, like, a lot of the book, and this is one thing that struck me as a, an adult, and I think this is, like, one of the appeals of it as a kid, and one of the things that makes it, like, kind of a special book, especially when you're reading as a kid, but as an adult, I can see, like, the seams of is because it is so much happens, and because uh, it is fairly short as a book, she just jumps into things and so like you have that romance that go between Meg and Calvin but also just like some of the themes like I think like very few books would just have the characters stop and say here's all the big ideas that this book is about but there's a sequence like not too far into the book like where you up to that point you've been like huh this is kind of weird what's happening and all of a sudden they're like hey look we're fighting this thing and we're on the same team as Jesus and Gandhi so let's go yeah. Like, there's a lot of shorthand that it, they, where Madeline Langle draws on a lot of, like, mythology and religion to just, like, shortcut to this big idea. Yeah. And I think that's really thrilling, especially as a kid when you've heard those names, like, you know who Gandhi is, or you know who Jesus is, or you know, you've, you, you've read the Bible, or you've, you've heard these Bible verses that they say, and you can instantly, like, plug into, oh, this is the bigger thing that they're talking about. But as an adult, I can kind of see how she's taken shortcuts a little bit where, you know, you would, maybe as an adult, you might want there to be more nuance and discussion about like the philosophy of like, okay, so, you know, what is darkness? What is light? Like, because Jesus was not fighting against conformity. You know, what is, what does it mean? 
to say that Jesus is a warrior for light, you know, how does that fit in within Christianity? And like, she doesn't really do that, but she uses like someone like Jesus to just say, oh, this is important just like what Jesus did. And so you know the scale of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, my impression now is I still think it's a great book. I do, um, yeah, even having, like I said, read all those other dystopian YA books and Harry Potter and all those things that I think borrow from her, like I still think her book holds up. So I still really like yeah, it. Yeah, and I, st- I still really love the ending. I, I talked about the ending already, but like the ending yeah. I, where she seemed... loves Charles Wallace and that's the thing that like reason can't understand and so that's the thing that saves him. Like yeah. I think that that is just like a really wonderful idea. And that is, I don't know, like that is something that is that continues to be like a powerful idea regardless of social context. Like, you know, as long as we live in a world in which like human life is abstracted into numbers uh-huh. and and into formats and into structures the the power of love to kind of like subvert that and rebestow humanity upon people that systems have taken away from like i i don't know that's that's really beautiful yeah i also still really like the 2003 movie so i don't know what that says about me in my opinions but i still have a very fond memory of that movie and i will watch it again so so that movie has at least one fan. So yeah, but uh, I've not seen the 2018 one. I don't so. think it's good. I, okay, I don't. Well, I'll just stick with with old Ephraim over there. All right. So am I hearing like thumbs up on Definitely. Wrinkle in Time? Yeah, Definitely. we'll try to. I think I think we'll probably try to do like kind of dumb like Roger Ebert like thumbs up thumbs down sort of thing at the end uh, of each one and just to you know reduce the beauty of human art into an algorithm um like it in a wrinkle in time so yeah i'm still thumbs up on this too um i will say like as a note i was going to when i was a kid i had read through the third book um or what i thought was the third book so that's like there's a wrinkle in time and there's the next book which is called the wind in the door in which they meet like literal cherubim and then go into charles wallace's mitochondria or whatever like it's really surreal like even weirder than this book is uh, and then the third book is called The Swiftly Tilting Planet, in which they use their psychic powers that they developed over the last two books to go back in time and change the tra- trajectory of history to avert a nuclear apocalypse. Um, and so when we were reading this book, I was like, okay, I'm going to read this book, and I'm actually going to finish the quintet, like the the time quintet that is advertised on the back of this book. Um, and that's when I found out, I got through the third book, and that's when I found out that, like, oh, there's actually a lot of books connected to this. And I kind of petered out. Um, but having reacquainted myself with the uh, second and third book, which was all I had read as a kid, like, I will say this is definitely the strongest one. Um, the others are much weirder, if that's even possible, than A Wrinkle in Time. I do remember them getting absurd, but I don't I don't remember. I think absurd is the wrong thing. And, like, some of the stuff is really cool. Like... One of the things that happens at the end of A Wind in the Door um, is they're inside the mitochondria and like there's like like the book breaks down into poetry. Like it's really stylistically adventurous like because they're in the mitochondria and the mitochondria all have to work together uh, or excuse me, the frandelay inside the mitochondria, whatever. Like it's, it's really convoluted. <laughs> but like basically it's sort of the same as in A Wrinkle in Time where... Um, the, the individual components of the mitochondria are splitting up 
because they want to be individuals and don't want to serve the greater good. And so like the thing that brings them back together is this, like poetry and song. And the book itself breaks down into poetry and song. And that's really interesting and cool. And like there's other stuff that happens in Swiftly Tilting Planet that's also kind of cool like that. And like stuff that you would never see in children's literature in general, like really visionary stuff. But like this is the most coherent of yeah. those three books, I think. And the one that falls apart least upon scrutiny because I think a lot of times her books have these big ideas, but maybe don't, uh, don't always completely cohere. Like I imagine like she sat down and wrote a window at the door, imagining that ending and like some of the stuff getting to that ending is kind of difficult. Um, but so I don't know how much, um, you know, listeners to this podcast would be interested in reading the other books or how much listeners are, have already read those other books. Um, but that's my like little capsule review of them, which is that there's some cool stuff, but this is still the best. Yeah. And so just like kind of leave you with a few tidbits that I thought were interesting. One is which um, Madeline Langle wrote this book, what she labels as a time of transition, like she and her family. Um, this is when she was grown, of course, had been living in uh, rural you say Goshen, Connecticut? That's how that? I would say it. Um, for several years, and they were moving back to New York City. So she wrote this book during that transition time. Um, and, like, Michael and I were looking at the house that they lived in in Connecticut was, like, a 200-year-old farmhouse. So we're wondering if the house that the Murrays live in was based off of that book. Because they talked multiple times about yeah. how it's really old and like pre-revolutionary war and stuff yeah. like that. Which we thought was interesting. And then another thing, just another interesting tidbit, is there's like an interview with Madeline Lingle in the back of this book and they ask what her favorite food is and it's cream of wheat. So if that's not the most wholesome thing that you've ever heard, I don't know what is. So I hope she flavors it. I hope so too. But It's you not know. just like a plain cream of wheat. Well, yeah. So anyway, good book. That's the wrinkle in time. Yeah. Um, so next time when our next episode is going to be, we're, so this was book number one that we're doing. And then like we said in the first episode, we're going to start going by decade through. And so we're going all the way to the beginning of the Newberry Awards uh, and picking a book from the 1920s. And the book that we picked is the very first uh, Newberry Award winner or Newberry Medal winner, um, which is called The Story of Mankind and is by, I'm going to remember this guy's, he's like Dutch. Hendrik William... Van... Yes, like, it's, yeah, it's Hendrik, like, Wilhelm von Loon or something like that. Yes, that's it. It is, I think, one of the only nonfiction books that has won the Newbery Medal. Um, and it is very long, so... Um, We're trucking. Unlike away. A Wrinkle in Time, it is very long. It's, like, 500 pages, and it's literally, like, the history of mankind. So um, that will be the next book that we read. If you want to read along with us, you can read that very long and very antiquated book um, before you listen to the next podcast because that's what we'll be talking about then. But if you don't want to read it, you know, it's it's world history. So maybe you can just remember from high school or something. <laughs> yeah, whatever interpretation of history that you were taught in high school. Right. Um, and also... Whatever interpretation we're reading in this book, I guess I should say. And also, if you have thoughts about what uh, what we said about A Wrinkle in Time... We don't have an email. We don't have <laughs> anything set up for this podcast. Uh, but I'm sure at the time that we're recording this, we've not actually like uploaded the podcast or anything like that. But I'm sure we'll have a social media presence. I'm sure at this point, it is mostly our parents listening to this. Uh, and so you guys can text us. Um, yeah, just let us know. But uh, 
the rest of y'all, um, when you know, after this podcast gathers acclaim and, and thousands of listeners, um, I'm sure in subsequent podcast episodes we'll have created some sort of something that you can you can give us feedback. But uh, for now, in episode the first real episode where it's probably just friends and family listening to us, let us know what you think. Um, anyway, do you have any other thoughts before we sign off, Rebecca? I don't. Okay, well, talk to you later. Thanks for listening. Bye.